who's trying to design things in a better way. And I think that's, that's really the hope, that we will design a world that would maximize human potential. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, it's my privilege to be speaking with Israeli-American behavioral economist and best-selling author Dan Ariely. The James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, Dan is the founder of a research institution called the Center for Advanced Insight and the co-founder of several companies, including Kaima, which helps public and business organizations create proven, measurable, and scalable solutions for improving the quality of human life. Dan's TED Talks have been viewed over 15 million times, and his two webinars for JFN are among our most popular videos, so check them out. He is the author of the three New York Times bestsellers, Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. He writes the Wall Street Journal advice column, Ask Ariely. Dan is also an advisor to Keshet, the first Israeli donor advice fund that JFN co-founded with two partners in order to make this philanthropic tool available for Israelis. Most importantly, Dan is a true mensch who is always generous with his advice and his wisdom. In this episode, Dan and I discuss COVID and the many factors that influence human decision-making, particularly in what relates to philanthropy, motivation of donors, and nonprofit economy in general. We also discuss personal resilience and the tools that we can use to make our lives better. Take a listen. So, Dan Ariely, great to have you here in What Gives. Lovely to be here and a good name for a podcast. <laughs> yes. Well, if you say that, it gives me some reassurance. When you were growing up, did you ever think, imagine that you would be researching what you're researching and doing what you're doing? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> and, you know, they're kind of um, uh, two models for luck. And uh, sometimes uh, people realize that they are lucky, either good luck or bad luck, when something big happens. So yeah. you win the lottery, you get into a car accident, you know, those things like are big things that change your life trajectory, but it's a, it's a clear moment. But for most of us, most of the, the good luck we had or the bad luck comes from a lot of little steps. And if I think about my trajectory in life, Uh, there was one big step, which was my injury, uh, but there were a lot of little steps. A lot of things, I, people I met and changed slightly what, what I was doing. Even the story of my first book is kind of a story of luck. Um, I was a faculty at MIT for a few years at, at the time, and I wanted to write something non-academic. You know, it, academic writing is fine, but nobody would call it creative. And I felt right. like the need to write something more creative And I decided to write a cookbook. The, the name of the cookbook was going to be Dining Without Crumbs, The Art of Eating Over the Sink. And I wrote a few chapters 
and it was it was not really a cookbook. It was a social science view of life through the kitchen, right? The kitchen is where we create and experiment and we think about other people. We procrastinate, we fail. I shopped it around and uh, every book agent I showed it to said, really cute, but what kind of book is this? <laughs> they said, where would it be in the store? Like what genre does it fit? Eventually there was one, I failed, I failed, I failed. Eventually there was one book agent that told me that if I wanted to publish this cookbook, I first have to write something purely about my research. And I said, look, I really don't want to. <laughs> She said, you have to. So I wrote Predictably Irrational, which, you know. Amazing book. Uh, got to change, change my, my way of looking, at, of looking at life in so many ways. But, but, yeah. but I wrote that book. You know, that's sold in, in many languages and so on as a stepping stone for my cookbook. So, you know, those, <laughs> you know, if you ask me, like, where did I plan my life would be? I, I certainly didn't plan this. And certainly my life has taken lots of really interesting turns and ended up in a really interesting place. Amazing. And uh, what happens with the cookbook finally? When will we see it? So I'm still working on it. Uh, oddly, I worked on it yesterday. A little bit it's getting better right it's been in the work for like 15 <laughs> years and I've changed my understanding of different things so one day it will be a really good book is <laughs> what what Steven Johnson calls the long hunch right yeah. it takes takes a long time to mature now you you talk about your injury and you talk about your injury quite quite open in in your books and in your presentations it always strikes me as a, as a great story of personal resilience to sort of reinterpret the what happened to you and put it in a wouldn't call it in a positive context but somehow integrated it you know harmonically in the narrative of your life yeah and uh, certainly I appreciate you not saying it positive because you know yeah. no I, positive is not no think, but uh, yeah I mean so, some people said oh you know my injury was the best thing to happen to me but but no <laughs> I don't yeah. think, but there are positive sides to it right yeah. just because it's an overall negative impact doesn't mean it's positive but And you know the question of resilience is a, is a really fascinating question we don't really understand resilience right. very well so you know I was I was badly injured uh, burns 70% of my body I was in hospital for three years and you know even up to four years ago I still had surgery so it, it still continues but a couple of years ago I was in Holland I visited the burn unit there uh, Holland has a central burn unit across all the burn centers uh, around the country and you They told me about the research they just completed. And the research was they went back to people who were injured eight and nine years earlier and checked how they were doing. Like, mm. were they integrated back into life? Did yeah. they work? And they checked people who came out from a big explosion in Holland and a big explosion in Belgium. And what they found were the Dutch, the people from Holland were fine, and the Belgians were in terrible situations. Now, of course, it wasn't because they were Dutch and they were Belgians. What happened was that in Holland, it happened in a small community. So there was a big explosion in a small community. Lots of people got injured, but everybody knew who got injured. And they basically came back to life. And, they reintegrated, and, yeah. That's right. And in Belgium, it, it happened in a, in a train station. So people have lived very far away from each other. And there was no sense of community and people basically stayed at home. And it made me think about my own injuries. So think about like a, a time horizon. 
And at some point, I was almost 18, I got badly injured, life became terrible. Then over the next three or four years, it got better. And you know, you get used to living with an injury, I can't move my hands very well, but I figure out what I can do and how to have less pain and so on. So life gets better. And then it turns out that going back and getting integrated into life is more negative. <laughs> Because imagine that you just got used to living at home and nobody is looking at you and you know how to do things and so on. And all of a sudden you need to go to the outside world. Yeah. The outside world is not ready for you. And the temperature is, is set up wrong if you're, if you're a burn victim. And there are things, some doors you can't open and people look at you strangely. All kinds of things happen. So life becomes worse again. And then after, after a while it gets better. Because if you right. get integrated in life, the long-term benefits are there. The short-term cost is very, very salient. And I've been thinking a lot about what is it that helps people take the short-term negative effects of going out and doing it for the long-term benefits. And I think in my case, it certainly had to do with my family and my community. I actually remember a, a day in the rehabilitation department you know, I would have a, a surgery and I would hospitalize for a while. And then I would be a bit more free for a few days. Like I could go and have lunch with my buddies in hospital and I would do physiotherapy, but I had kind of more flexible day. and then a surgery again and, and so on. So one day I'm in, I'm in this uh, lunchtime discussion and the whole discussion was about disability. What does the government provide and what are the benefits and how do you navigate it? And it's a very obvious discussion because, you know, it's a, it's a mysterious, frightening world to be disabled all of a sudden in this way. And yeah. how do you manage? But my impression at that lunch, and I, I don't know what to attribute it to, was that I did, didn't want to be part of that team. Uh -huh. I somehow did not want to become a professional disabled person. Uh -huh. And I decided to stop going to these lunches. And I think what happened was that I had a strong community. Uh, my family, my friends, and I felt belonging to that group, D despite the, the injury and so on, I, I still felt more connected. So one of the keys to, to resilience, in your view, both in your experience as a researcher, but in your personal experiences, is the strength of community. And I think so. I think, I think a community, you know, resilience, I, I think is kind of like an insurance policy. Right? It's like, what happens when things turn negative? And do right. you have the, the resources and strength and ability to turn to? And it could be a, your own. And, but I think community is a big part of that. So the communal professional in me immediately think about resilience in communal terms or in personal terms and links it to what we're going through now with the coronavirus epidemic. And, and there's a lot of dislocation, a lot of pain. And resilience seems to be the word of the day in many ways uh, when we come back. And, and maybe from what you're saying, I think that Jewish communities need to double down precisely on the notion of community and the providing framework for belonging and for being together, right? Yeah. And, and I think to some degree, I think we're doing some of the wrong things. Go so say more? I don't mean we, the Jewish people, I mean, we as humanity. Yeah. Um, I think what's happening now is that people are closing down their social circles. I think people are like, you know, focusing on their families and maybe the closest friends. And we spend more time with that and less time 
with people who are, you know, second and third step removed. And it's understandable. But what happened is that a lot of people are left with less support. So if you are in a community, and even take me as an example. So right now I'm in Durham, North Carolina, and I don't have, you know, I have my ex-wife and kid. <laughs> Uh, that's a, that's a long story. That's a community, yeah, community. of some sort. Um, but I'm not really, because I, I travel all the time and, and my close-knit community is really in Israel, not here. I'm kind of out of social circles. Now, I'm fine. I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. And I have my friends in Israel. But, you know, if you don't belong to first and second degree circles, you're basically left out in the cold. And, and if something goes wrong and you need somebody to talk to, some advice, some help, it's a very lonely period. Right? So I think it's a time that we should reach out to the people at the edges of our social network. That's probably an opportunity for the Jewish community, for neighborhood synagogues and federations and youth organizations to say, reintegrate you with, as you say, the second, third and, and fourth circles. Right? Yeah. So, for example, I'm a part of an organization called Lev Echad in, in Israel. Yeah. And um, for the Memorial Day for the soldiers, there was a question of how are people going to mourn their yeah. family members and their kids? And uh, we got uh, more than 10,000 volunteers and we sent two of them to stand outside of parents' homes who lost a kid in the war. And we, right. we didn't get to cover everybody, but we got covered almost everybody. And it was only two people. They, they were standing basically outside of the house, but it was showing solidarity, showing that we care. Where in this isolated time, you just right. don't see as much of it well, as possible. I think this is fascinating. And I think that we at the Jewish community, as I was saying, we should be much more creative in, in strengthening the sense of belonging as a key to, to long-term resilience. And I think we should do more of that. Changing gears for a minute, reading your first book, I loved it, of course, but I was also left with a sense that what we understand as free will, you know, like that I'm making rational decisions and whatever. I mean, what stuck with me was the way you choose a wine from the wine list in the restaurant or the way how you shop in a supermarket, how conditioned that is. Yeah. Right. So do you think that part of the research you're doing and another of your colleagues in the neuroscience, is it really showing that human free will is an illusion? So the answer is yes and no. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. What we're finding is that if I place you in a particular environment, the environment will direct much of your choices. So let's take an extreme example. If I came to your house every morning for the next year with a fresh tray of croissants, baguettes, and muffins, by the end of the year, you'll be less healthy. <laughs> I, I'm not saying you'll fail and eat a croissant every day, but it will happen more often than you would have liked to. And by the end of the year, you would gain weight, you will be less healthy, more cholesterol, and so on. So from that perspective, you have less free will than you think. Because once the croissant gets close, like right now, you can say to yourself, oh, yes, I'm not going to try these croissants. When they're close by, and maybe if that chocolate croissant, that, yeah. you know, <laughs> Dulce de leche for me, but yeah. There you go. 
So human freedom, we don't have that much. However, I don't have to come to your house with a cross. So I think that free will is much more in the design of our systems than in our actions within those systems. For example, if you go to a buffet, the person who arranged the buffet, we can control that. Once we've controlled that, we don't have that much free will. So, so that's why I care so much about designing systems. And if we design systems in a better way, we can get to better outcomes. So, you know, during COVID, for example, we understood how badly design is the education system. And now we can think about, okay, how do we design it better? Or we can just say, how do we design motivation in the workplace? We can right. design it better. How do we design eating? So I think, you know, in the same way, you look at the chairs that you and I are sitting on. Somebody designed those chairs like many people design those chairs. Yeah. Somebody thought about the thickness of the cushion. Right. And somebody thought about the wheels. And every little detail has a lot of engineering and a lot of thought. The same thing is true for cognitive products. Like, you know, should we design retirement plans? Yes, absolutely. Right. I'll, give you, I'll give you one quick example. In the US, lots of people get food stamps. And the government gives them once a month. Hmm. And if you look at the pattern of how people use them is that on the day when they get them, they feel wealthy, relatively And they speaking. buy a ton of stuff, yeah. And they buy, not just that they buy a ton of stuff, they buy not the most efficient things. Right. right? So if they came in the first day and they bought lentils, that would be amazing. But right. if they but buy they a sandwich at 7-Eleven, it's a pre-made sandwich, not that healthy, plus expensive. So we did something very simple. We created an app we can't change the way the government gives money. I mean, maybe one day, but we couldn't. Yeah. But that app showed people a quarter of the money. We said to people, we're dividing it into four parts for you. Try and spend this amount this week. Now, did we manage for the money to last the whole month? No, but we, we got it to stretch for about 40% more. And we got people to spend less money on, on expensive stuff and more on bulk items. Or, so, or, yeah. Now, that's just design, yes. right? It's just how does the money look to you? Like, does it look like a big amount in your account or does it look like a quarter? Yeah, and I think there's a ton of research. Also, if you go shopping with cash or with a credit card, yeah. like you don't feel the pain of paying with a credit card, but in neurological terms, you feel the pain of paying with cash. So it, that's right. So that's, again, a design question. Credit cards get people to spend more. And not only do they get people to spend more, they get them to remember less how much money they spend. And if you compare it to, forget cash, cash is very different, prepaid debit, people spend differently. Or here's another example from spending. We did the following experiment. We asked people to tell us how much money do you want to spend this month on discretionary things? Uh, you know, th this was before COVID, you know, yeah. supermarket, restaurants, beer, transportation, and so on. And on average, people said $2,000. And we said, okay, take this credit card and try to spend $2,000 on all these discretionary things. And people overshot by a lot. Another condition, we gave them a prepaid debit. We said, here's a prepaid debit with $2,000. Now you can always load more money, right. uh, but try and use prepaid debit. Now a credit card goes up, prepaid debit goes down to zero. People still spend more. I mean, not as much, like credit card was way over, prepaid debit was still over. So then we said, okay, let's give you the prepaid debit, but load $500 a week instead of $2,000. And we did this because 
we saw that when you give people $2,000 in the beginning, they feel rich. But if you give them $500 a week, it's much better. And there, one more improvement. What do you think is better? If we load the money on the prepaid debit card on Monday or on Friday? Wow, that's a good question. Probably Monday. Exactly. Yeah. Why? Because if you load it on Friday, the weekend happens. The weekend happens and you go and you go out with it, right. If you load it on Monday, people savor to the weekend. And if they overshot, the weekend is when we can scale up and down more easily. And it's an incentive. If you save for the weekend, then on the weekend you can go out and do. Exactly. So you could see how, and these are little details, right? It says... Debit card versus prepaid debit, monthly versus weekly, Monday versus Friday. All of these details is where I think human freedom lies. Like on the design, but but a better system. So so there is one aspect of human freedom that is in the design. But then, what happens when you are stuck in systems that you can't redesign? Like you know, social media manipulates you, right? And you go into the supermarket and you don't get to redesign the layout of the supermarket. That I read, I learned from your book too. They put the, the healthy stuff in the front. So you, it conditions you to think that all you're buying is healthy, um, right? So this is scary in a way that what we know about the brain and how we operate and our decision-making, people can actually manipulate that. You know, we saw, you know, alter elections, uh, Yep. make us buy things we don't need. I mean, some of the stuff is benign. Some of the stuff can be really problematic. Yeah, so I agree with you that some systems we can't design from the inside and we have to think about how we override them from the outside. So right. for example, supermarket shopping, we are now trying to figure out how do we create shopping lists to people in advance and have them follow those plans. Right. You can't change the supermarket, but you can reduce their power by following this social media. It turns out that if you write in your calendar when you're going to watch or to use social media, you also know when you shouldn't. So you're right. There are some things that it's very hard for us to design for, and we have to think about, we have a more limited power hmm. and we have to design from the outside. You know, hearing you speak, I'm wondering, is there a specific Israeli approach or Israeli way of thinking to the way you work? And what I find is that the Israeli scientist is very practical. Am I correct? It's about problem solving. Like you're this yeah, MIT and Duke and this, but you're also very practical. Like how do you go to a supermarket and don't buy more? Am I reading too much here? Or there's something about Israeli technology, Israeli science that is about finding specific and concrete solutions to stuff. So first of all, I think there is something about Israelis not being happy with what we have and <laughs> trying to think <laughs> better. Um, there was a story that the Americans sold the Israelis, I think it was F-16s, I think. And then uh, very quickly, the, the Israeli pilots in their maneuvers were doing better than the Americans. There's all kinds of measurements on how yeah. do you figure things out. And the Americans sent a committee to Israel to find out how could they get more out of these yeah. planes that the Americans were getting so quickly. And what they discovered was that the Israeli pilots put a rear view mirror in the plane. Wow. It was like a dead spot. Now, this is a, you know, tens of millions of dollars of equipment. 
and you need some deep, healthy disrespect for authority. <laughs> right? If you respect the people who designed the plane, you're not going to stick to glue a rearview mirror in there. You need some, some really um, healthy disrespect for the engineers who forgot yeah. to do something. So I think there is something about not just the Israeli science, but technology, about thinking about how to make things better. Um, in terms of science, I would say that some of it, we, we started by talking about luck. I think that some of those things happened, I was just in the right place in the right time. So one of the amazing things that happened to social science was the technology revolution. If you think about even my research 30 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, it was mostly lab research. People would right. come to the lab, they would play this game or that game, or maybe I had a vending machine or you know stuff like that. But then technology happened, and all of a sudden we have data about eBay, right. dating websites, and Amazon. And I think it was just at the right time, all of a sudden, we could, if we wanted to, study things that are more about real life. So the data became available, it became really interesting, and there was an opportunity to do science this way. Right. So if you think about 30 years ago, and you could say, if you wanted to study dating, you were in trouble. Really you needed tough. to survey people, you needed a focus yeah. group. Now you can look at Tinder, and you can look at how people swipe differently depending on the time of day. Interesting. And, right. and by the way, there's a really beautiful result showing that this is before COVID. You could track people walking in New York, and depending on the time of day, their standards for who they're searching for changes. <laughs> That's so right? interesting. So you think about the granularity and the richness of the data, and it's not just, of course, about dating, it's about everything. It's been amazing. So the technology revolution, and the, therefore the data revolution, has been really wonderful for us. And, and that created something, which is that we, could, we the social scientists, could all of a sudden create knowledge about things that more people wanted to know. So now, not only is there more data, but there's more realization that social science is important. And right. that's feeding back that. Right. So, you know, the, the number of requests I get from companies and governments and so on is just tremendous. Because if you're a government and before data was so available and before people understood social science, you would say, I want people to behave a different way. Let me just regulate Right. Let me just write a law or put police in the streets. And, and right. you tell them, no, I, with the data I have, with the data you have that you don't know how to use, I can get to the same result in a more effective way. That's right. Or you're actually not going to get to the, right. the result. The, so, yeah. So, so there is the data explosion and the realization of the importance of social science. By the way, COVID, every time there's a catastrophe, people pay more attention. So the idea that the government will issue instructions and people would follow. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It just got completely debunked. Yeah. yeah. Now, you're talking about the system changing in some ways and the data making some things available. I think that another thing that is happening that also I think that uh, Israelis are particularly good at, for some reason that I don't know, is at integrating different disciplines, right? If you look at what is so genius about the Iron Dome, that it takes different technologies in which Israel is not at the top of any of them. What Israel does is integrates them, yeah. right? And, and in a way, what you do is kind of the same. You don't have to be the best neuroscientist out there. You need to know how to connect data with neuroscience. Now, it seems to be 
something really interesting about the ingenuity of that of that type of work. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of good scientists out there, yeah. and um, I I view myself more as an engineer than a scientist, even though you know officially I'm, yeah. I'm a scientist. But I my objective at the end of the day is to change behavior, and I don't care so much. You know, I care to some degree, but I'm fine with using different tools, right? But my interest at the end of the day, you know, going back to my injury is how do we make things better? My research career started by asking the question of how do we get doctors and nurses to remove bandages from patients in a way that is less painful, right? Very, very practical. There's all kinds of ways to do it. So personally, I'm very much committed to the notion that some people could be great scientists and I would love for them to do that. I personally don't have the patience. So <laughs> Which is also a very Israeli trait. <laughs> yes, maybe that's... So I'm not going to study procrastination for 20 years. I want to start making improvements next year. So we're talking about a lot of cognitive traps in a way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and you mentioned some in your books, you know, the escalation of commitment and the... What is the loss aversion? And yep. uh, you know, working with funders and with philanthropies, I see many of these cognitive traps at play. The one that I see the most is the escalation of commitment. Yes. You made an investment in something, and the more you invest, the more committed you are, and it ends up having nothing to do with the results that that investment is having. Any other particular cognitive trap that you think affects philanthropy more than, more than others? Probably confirmation bias is a big one. It's connected to this. Information bias is the fact that we are looking for information that confirm what we thought already, right. rather than information that would disprove what right. we thought. Right. So, and, and that's connected to the fact that if we make a big step into one direction, realizing that we're wrong is very, very frightening. So we are trying to look only for information that would tell us that we're right. And the bigger the step you make into that direction, the, the, the more the confirmation the bias is going to. And that, I guess, applies to politics, too. If you voted for one candidate, yeah. you know, and the more controversial the candidate was, the more confirmation bias you're going to need to justify. There's a, there's a beautiful result showing that even the time it takes to vote, if you ask people before they voted and after they voted, their confidence in their, the person they voted for increases in those 10 minutes because right. the act of voting increases them, right. Increases and, that. and I think the group thing too, right? As a, as a cognitive trap for philanthropists, you know, that tend to be part of, I wouldn't call it echo chambers, but sort of relatively close-knit communities. They tend to reinforce each other. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, the other thing is that when, when you think about biases, there are some biases that are purely bad, And there are some biases that are both good and bad, especially when you talk about biases compared to rationality, right? Because remember, the the rational person would never give money to charity to start with. Right. The rational person would just try to do this. But we are emotional and we feel connected and it's not just about us. So, So there's lots of beautiful irrational tendencies. One of them, I think, is to connect emotionally to a charity. If, if I think about the kind of things I give to, these are things that I am emotionally connected to. Now, could I do a cost-benefit analysis and say, where would my marginal dollar be the most effective in what kind of a charity? I could, but there's something that just touched my heart. 
And yeah. it's, it's one of those irrationalities that I think we should accept. <laughs> We're different in what moves us. And it is okay to try to take the things that move us and make an impact there because that's more important to us. Right. But then we go to the point of design that you were talking before, right? So, sort of, yes, we have an emotional, and thanks God for it, we, we really have this emotional desire to give and to drive towards solidarity, but also we don't want to throw money out of the window, right? That's so right. so I, think, I think people should use their emotions and their passion to decide on an area to give to. But once you get to an area... Now you want to give your money in an effective way and you want to evaluate and figure out what's, what's going on. And, you know, a little bit like there's also kind of the, a, a cycle, a, a virtuous cycle, that if you give to something that you're interested in, you learn more about that, you become more interested, you might help come up with more, more ideas, more solutions. That we actually researched. The more engaged you are, the more you give. I would even go further. The only predictor of giving is how engaged you are. Yeah. And all the other predictors are not so good, like age and wealth, and but how engaged you are never fails. The more engaged you are, the more you give. So there is this thing called the identifiable victim effect, right? And if you remember that there was a girl in Texas who fell to a well yeah, yeah, many, yeah, yeah. many years ago. You know, she was uh, stuck there for over a day and the person who rescued her was on the cover of Time magazine and... Uh, unbelievable story, but in the time that she was in the well, she got more coverage than Rwanda and Darfur put together. Right, right, right. Where yeah. thousands of kids were dying every day. That's right. And so there is something about this emotion that is not always good. By the way, right. lots of people gave her money after right. she was out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now she's a, she's a wealthy young lady. But <laughs> the thing that pulls on her heartstring is not always the, the, the right thing, but at the right. same time, when it is, it's the thing that gets us to act and care and, and have this passion and bring other people along and so on. So going to mix these two worlds, the world of philanthropy, the world of behavior and social change, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing in Israel to sort of harness the power of behavioral science to change you know, reality and to improve social outcomes. So I started a group called Kaima about four years ago, and it started by, I gave a talk to the Ministry of Finance, to the budget office, and they are very well known for being arrogant, but, but when, when I finished the talk, they said, we want help. I said, great, I'm happy to help. And now in the last four years, I've done projects on a ton of things, all the way from reducing bureaucracy for people with disability to find jobs, to getting more kids and particularly more girls to study computer science, to get Bedouin women to find jobs, to get Orthodox men and women, but particularly women to go and study, increasing trust in our, our version of the IRS, getting people to ride share or use their cars less, just a tremendous uh, level. And the amount of requests is amazing. Uh, we have a wonderful group of, and it's a, it's a nice interdisciplinary group. So we have some social scientists, data scientists, some designers, software engineers, and we all work together. And I'll, I'll, I'll describe one project that was really fun. So this was a study with Kupat Cholim, the biggest HMO in Israel. And people sh make appointments to see physicians, specialists, and then they don't show up. 
for all kinds of reasons. So they decide to notify people, to remind them. So there's a reminder five days before and two days before. But even with those reminders, about 21% of the people don't show up and don't cancel. And people get a reminder that says, hey, to remind you, you have this meeting and this place and this hour, show up or click here to cancel. But 21% don't show up and don't cancel. Now, you could do lots of things. You can build reputation, you could uh, give penalties, you could give rewards. But for this first experiment, we were limited to only change the text message. So, you know, it's not the whole tool set right. that, that we have, we just limited the text message. So we tried eight different versions. We remind people on their own commitment to health. We reminded them their family wants them to be healthy. We reminded them about the name of the doctor, the name of the nurse, how much money the AGMO would lose, all kinds of things. Every one of our methods worked better than theirs. But the thing they won, the thing that got the biggest amount of people to show up on time or to cancel was a call that said, remember, if you don't need this appointment, somebody else, there's another citizen in the country who could use your appointment. Interesting. That change reduced the number of people who didn't show up by about half. Wow. Now, we saved 500, about 500,000 days of waiting a year just with these small changes. So, you know, when when you ask the question of what motivates people, it's really kind of magical what motivates. By the way, I was very happy with these results, right? The idea that solidarity. Right. It's a great great message. It was beautiful. Now, it was a little bit of a shame that they didn't care so much about the HMO losing money. But But going back to your point, the HMO is not that little girl in a well. The HMO is a big impersonal thing. And the other person like you who needs an appointment, it's a person that you can identify with. That's right. So that's the kind of things that we do. We get these different missions and we investigate almost like detectives. What's going on? What is holding people back? What could we add to motivate people? And then we're trying to find out ways to implement that in either technology or in regulation. And it's amazingly cost-effective, I would assume, right? Because changing a text message, the alternative to that would have been to create a whole system and penalties and somebody to police it and to enforce it and just to change the text message. That's all. What would Kaima say or do with this bizarre and insane trend in the U.S. not to use masks and to make a principle that are not using masks. So let, let's say, you know, the government, you know, Dr. Fauci here in the US calls you and said, Dan, I heard what you did with Kaima in Israel. How can you help me to convince people to wear masks? So first of all, you know, it's, it's tough to fight something after it's been around for nine months, right? So, but here is the thing with COVID-19. COVID-19 is a low probability event. And one of the problems with low probability event is that bad behavior gets rewarded. What do I mean by that? Imagine that we're talking about texting and driving and texting and driving and something bad happened is a low probability event. You text and drive, the chance of an accident is 1%, let's say. And let's say one day you text and drive and nothing bad happened, the probability is 1%. You emerge from that experience saying, oh, maybe it's less dangerous than I thought. So one of the things that is happening is that every time you don't use a mask, and nothing bad happens, you learn the wrong lesson. So if you tomorrow go to a restaurant and a couple of people don't wear masks in the restaurant and you're slightly worried, and two days later you say, nothing happened, your perceived cost of doing that changes. 
so there are two things we need to do. The first thing we need to do is we need to give people a more realistic view of what's happening. And we can't rely on their own experience. Right. We need to do something that is at a higher level. So that's one thing. Much like in texting and driving, you need to understand exactly what the risk. You can't let your own model update in the wrong way. You know, when you drive, we are much more aware of the people who are driving too fast than people who are driving at the speed limit. The same thing is happening when people not obeying almost anything. The people right. who are salient are the people who are misbehaving. So you could be in an auditorium when 95% of the people are wearing masks, you'll notice the 5% who are not. You'll pay more attention to them. And then the second thing we need to do is we need to start creating a social norm. What does it mean? We need to feel okay to say to the people who are not wearing masks, excuse me, but this is making me feel uncomfortable. And we need to start saying thank you to the people who are wearing masks. Everybody who's not wearing masks and is not getting a, excuse me, you're making me feel uncomfortable, they need to get feedback for that right. all the time. So the, the question of a social feedback yeah. for both good behavior and bad behavior. For example, one of the things we tried unsuccessfully was to get the Israeli inspectors to give rewards to the people who are wearing masks rather than to give penalties to the people who are not wearing masks. And it could be a small one. It could be a lottery ticket that has a low expected value yeah. But, but positive reinforcement for something that is long lasting is much better than negative reinforcement. Right. Negative works to prevent you from doing something now, but that it doesn't, it doesn't hold over a long time. Not the same. Yeah. No. Um, that's one. And then the second thing is you need to get people to understand what is the risk? What is the real risk? Because our experience, yeah. you see, think about texting and driving. Every time you text and drive, you change your probability until it's too late. Right. Same thing is happening with... COVID, nothing happened, you, you relax, until it does. nothing happened, yeah. you relax until you get it. Yeah. And also one of the things that, that were very successful in, for example, the, the fight for marriage equality was to remind people of how many people they knew in their circle that were LGBT. So here, I guess, is the same story. If you simply ask people to say, think about how many people you know that got it. And no. so all of a sudden, the probability becomes much more real. That's right. And one of the challenges from what I understand is that the anti-vaxxers are very much going on people in social media and shaming people who are discussing their COVID illness. So they are bullying. Again, it's a non-symmetrical thing, right? So the anti-vaxxers are bullying uh, the people who are basically saying, I had Corona, here's the symptoms, here's what I had, yeah. be careful. And I heard that a lot of those people are just basically silenced. Silenced, right, because they don't want to be object of, oh, Harassed. you're part of a conspiracy, a hoax, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So we have a non-symmetrical pressure uh, right now to suppress. We need to create the opposite. One last thing, you know, apropos behavior and, um, and philanthropy, You're an advisor to our new donor of the Vice Fund in Israel, to, yes. to Keshet. And I had a theory that I wanted to run by you, which is that donor advice funds work because they allow people to retain a higher degree of control over their philanthropy. In other words, you give it, but you have 
a lot of control to track your money, to direct it to where you want to be. So that's why donor advice funds can be really great tools to incentivize people to give by giving them a, a, a heightened sense of control. Am I right? I, I think it's only a part of it. I think the real picture is more, more interesting. So, so I think the donor advisor fund do two things. One is they separate the decision of how much to give from the decision of who to give to. So let's say you're like me, uh, you take Jewish heritage seriously and you decide that Maser is the right approach. Yeah, <laughs> the 10%, yeah. Maybe it should be 11, but you know, you say, okay, I'm, I'm dealing with 10. Okay, so you deal with 10. If you're reactive in your donations and you wait until this approach and that approach and so on, you will find at the end of the year that you probably did not reach 10%. So then you have a question about here's what I want to do, but I never get the time to do it. So the thing about separating the money from who to give to is, is very helpful. So for example, when I do my taxes, um, this is a good time. You do your taxes, you figure out how much you make. It's a really good time to figure out what's 10% and then you send a check to your donor advisor fund. So that's step number one, because it allows you to get closer to your own goals. Otherwise, what kind of account do you keep to figure out where you are to your goal? And the second thing that happened is that when you give an amount of money, you know, we mentioned the pain of pain. It's always like, oh, would they be better off or would I, you know, even though we like to give, but you know, still there's the, a little bit pain of pain. Pain of pain does not escalate with the amount that we give linearly. So giving 200,000 is not twice as painful as giving 100,000. So giving one big check once a year is easier than giving 100 little checks throughout the year. And then the third thing that happens is that when you actually give the money, it's like giving other people's money. It's right. pure joy, right? There's right. no, it's not you versus them anymore. Like if, if I give from my checking account, it's like, what, yeah, what's yeah, more yeah. important? You already paid it. It's, that, it's That's there. Right. That's right. So it's, it's pure joy giving. That's amazing. So, and then there's a question of how you design this. And I'll tell you what I do is once a year, I sit with my kids and we think about what is important to us. And we don't discuss numbers. Uh, they're a little too young for that. But it is a good opportunity to figure out hierarchy of goals. What do we care about? And when you look at a charity one by one, you don't get the opportunity to really do a, a comparison, like to sit with a family and say, should we give to this one or that one? That's not a discussion, but to sit and to think about what do we care about? What, the, what are the goals? Value clarification. Yeah. yeah. I think a donor advisor fund does all of those things. And that's, that's why I like it so much. And, and my vision for a donor advisor fund is I want it to be in the US. I would love it to be part of 401k, you know, equivalent, like yeah. every company puts a little bit of money into your donor advisor fund. And you can, of course, match and add as much as you want. Because I think that the perspective of giving, I think it's a good mechanism for giving. It's both allow you to get close to your goals. It gets you to give in a nicer way. It gets you to compare, think. It does all of these things. And I want the same thing to happen in Israel. Kind of my view for Keshet is that we will have an account for everybody. Everybody has their, their Keshet account the same way everybody has their, their uh, Bituach Leumi account, that's their right. national insurance account. Now, this will take a while, but that's, that's the goal. Because I think it's not just about the giving that amount of money. It's about the yearly discussion and it's about right. what do we care about. And it's this perspective that I want to be more common. Amazing. One last question. From what you see about 
human behavior, and now you've studied it for many years, is there something that fills you with hope about how humans behave and think and act? Lots of things give me hope. If, if you believe that people are perfectly rational, um, you say, this is it. The world is optimal. Right? <laughs> it's the outcome of you know, eight, nine billion rational people, and that's the best we can do. If you think that people are irrational, then you say, this is not an outcome of our potential. Our potential is just much higher, and it's, it's up to us to create the initial conditions for a better outcome. So, you know, can people eat better? Yes. Can we sleep better? Yes. Can we get people to save more? Yes. Can we get people to care more about each other? Yes. I mean, all of those, the answers to all of those is yes, 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 yes. We just need to design it better. So I think for a long time, we didn't really understand this question that you, you asked me about, like how much freedom of will do we have? And, and if you assume perfect freedom of will, you don't have to design anything right. uh, with a particular view. But I think we are realizing it and, and not fast enough, but we're starting to design things in a better way. And I think that's, that's really the hope, that we will design a world that would maximize human potential. And people don't have to be different. We already have a lot of potential in us. Like our potential for caring, I think, is high. Our potential for uh, working toward a, a greener planet, uh, eating better, living healthy. I mean, all of those things are within us. We just need the starting conditions for that. That's what gives me hope. Thank you very much, Dan. My pleasure with happiness and looking forward to our next meeting. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much to Dan Ariely. Watch our two webinars with him on JFN's YouTube channel and learn more about him at danarielli.com. You can also learn more about Kaima, the organization that Dan spearheaded in Israel at kaima.com. That is K-A-Y-M-A.com. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but in general, guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us, write us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at your own risk at Spokoini. I'll leave you now with a quote from our guest of today, Dan Ariely, who said, giving up on our long-term goals for immediate gratification is procrastination. So don't procrastinate, keep focused on your long-term goals, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives. <laughs>